You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. First, I just want to say... It was so fun to see so many of you down at the Big Sugar Gravel race a couple weekends ago in Bentonville, Arkansas. It was a great event, and I really love meeting you face-to-face. So for everyone who came up and chatted with me at some point over the course of the event, thank you, and keep on kicking ass out there. It's been it's been really fun meeting so many feisties and to have people yelling, hey, feisty, out on the course. We got something going here, and it's really cool. So this week, I sat down with the president of the American Association for Women Podiatrists, Dr. Karen Lengon, to talk all about feet. (laughs) It's been one that I've actually been wanting to do for an awfully long time, because so, so, so many of us have foot issues, whether they're bunions or heel pain or bone spurs like myself, our feet are literally our foundation. They impact everything. So taking care of them is super important. And addressing foot pain or poor foot biomechanics is essential for performance. As you'll hear us talk about on the show, people's neck pain can come from their feet. And like so many other things, foot issues can become more common as we go through the menopause transition because as estrogen declines, so does our collagen production, which impacts the literally dozens of joints and tendons we have in our feet. Dr. Langone was a wealth of knowledge on all of it. So whether or not you have foot issues right now, you are sure to learn a few things from this one. And if you do, I hope we can get them better for you. Along with being president of the American Association for Women Podiatrists, Dr. Langone is also on the medical team for many athletic events, including the seven-day race, the Boston Marathon, and the New York City Marathon. And she signs off on all of her emails with, long may you run. Amen to that. Okay, before we get to it, this is my little weekly reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have a private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook channel where you can come in and ask us anything that's on your mind. And as always, if you want to deep dive into all things active menopausal living, we have the Feisty Menopause Membership, where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, and sponsor discounts. You can learn all about that at feistymenopause.com. If you want to reach me, you can get me on email at hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. Thank you, as always, for your kind messages, show requests, five-star ratings, great reviews, All of this has continued to keep the show growing, and I am eternally grateful. Before we get to it, I also want to give a quick little shout out to our sponsor, Inside Tracker. It's time for me to head to Quest and get a reassessment. And, you know, by using their services and taking the recommendations, I have been able to get my iron and my vitamin D levels back into healthy ranges. My cortisol is down, and fingers crossed, hopefully, some of my lipids, which have been trending in the wrong direction, as they tend to do at this time of life, will be moving in a more favorable direction. So as they say, health is an inside job, and I am working on it. Okay, truly enough of me. Let's have a quick word about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. 
Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you, it works. Let's talk protein. As you've heard a million times on this show, women in the menopause transition need more of it. As estrogen declines, it's harder for us to make muscle and we need to take in more protein to get the job done. If you're training hard, you need even more, a lot more. Two grams per kilogram per day, which for me is about 120 grams. Some days it's a challenge to get through meals alone, so it's nice to have powders on hand when you need them. And if you're looking for one that is low in sugar, high in branch chain amino acids like leucine, which is especially good for muscle protein synthesis or making muscle, and is easy on your belly, our sponsor Prevenex has a good one, Norify Plus. Norify Plus is a vegan protein powder, which I know a lot of our listeners are keen to find, and is also super rich in all of your branch chain amino acids and contains probiotics and digestive enzymes, so it's easy to digest and doesn't cause the gassy feeling that you get with many other protein powders, which is something that I know a lot of women are interested in as well. Nerify has more than 130 positive reviews, including one from Hip Play Not Pause listener Donna, who gave it five stars saying, I just made my second shake with the chocolate vegan protein supplement. It is delicious. I love that it has vitamins and branched chain amino acids. I think this will become my go-to protein powder. Thanks, Donna. So listeners of this show can get 15% off their first time purchase by using the code HITPLAY at checkout. Again, go to Prevenix.com, use the code HITPLAY at checkout for 15% off your first purchase. If you don't like it, the company offers a 100% money back guarantee on all of the products within 30 days, no questions asked. So again, use HITPLAY, all one word, all caps at checkout, for 15% off your first time purchase at Prevenex, P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. Okay, as we were just talking offline, I'm super excited to have this show because 
I I actually personally love feet. I don't know why I'm one of those people that just thinks feet are really cool. I know some people don't like feet, which I think is weird, but I do think that our feet are so overlooked because I think our, in my opinion, and I'm sure yours, our feet are everything. It's, our, it's literally our foundation, right? It's literally our foundation. And if something is wrong with our foundation, how can that not affect every single thing as active women we're trying to do? That's it. And, you know, I'll say this to patients all the time, you know, unless you've got your feet on track, your, your knees, your hips, your core, everything is not going to function well, and you're not going to function at your optimum, and you're not going to feel as well as you should, you know, uh, I'm glad you like feet, because of course, obviously, I really like (laughs) feet as well. And, you know, when people ask me, like, why would you pick that body part to work on? Because if you cannot move, and you cannot do the things you wish to do, your whole quality of life, totally suffers first from a mental perspective, but then physiologically as well. You know, if people can't get up and move around, that's when heart disease and hypertension and all these Mm. things just become huge. And we're a country, basically, if you look at, you know, what are the things that are taking us down and, you know, and are causing our health to suffer and death. It is all those things. If we could keep moving, if we can continue to be active, you know, that's the key to a long successful and uh, optimal life as well. Nobody wants to be stuck in a chair and be 85. You know, I think we're all hoping and anticipating that, okay, maybe at 80, we're going to slow down, but we're still going to be out there. We're still going to be doing something and we're still going to enjoy a high quality of life. Yeah. And you bring up a really great point. I mean, you know, this, this audience is obviously uh, much, much more active than the general population, but you know, I, I've over the years for pieces I've done for Runner's World and Bicycling and other magazines, so much of like when when people present with hip pain or back pain, you know, they think it's their hips or they think it's their knees. But you, like you said, like it can be coming from their feet. No, just exactly. Working up the chain. Yeah. And we see a lot of people who come in because generally they've gone to an orthopedist for hip pain. They've been sent to physical therapy and the physical therapist has said, hey, wait a minute there's definitely a foot component here that you need to address in order to get this rectified. And I think that's been huge for us, you know, being able to really target that and pull a whole program together for people to be well. So, you know, I always say that you've got to start, you've got to start at the base and go from the base up, you know, no different than the foundation on a house, your foundation on your house is shaky. If it's crooked in any way, there's no way that you're going to move well. You know, one of the first patients that I ever had was a marathoner and he had some foot pain and, and we treated him and he came back and he said to me, you know, I never mentioned to you that I had neck pain. He said, but by the time I would finish the marathon, my neck was killing me. He said, and I literally, my head was at a 45 degree angle to my body. And he said, and now I finished and I had no neck pain whatsoever. So I think it's those things that we don't even really think make a correlation, but that compensation just travels up the entire, what we call kinetic chain. Totally. Totally. You put up an infographic. I I just wanted to share this with my audience on your Instagram, because I think it like really does a good job of explaining like why our feet are so important. They're so intricate. It says our feet contain a quarter of all bones that can be found in the body. That's because a foot has each foot has 26 bones, which only harden when we become an adult around 21. Feet have almost 8,000 nerves, which is why, folks, they're ticklish. And uh, in addition to 26 bones and thousands of nerves, we have 33 joints, 100 tendons, and 25,000 sweat glands. Wow. That's a lot of joints and tendons. Like that, I, th- I think I had heard the bone part, but like that part really surprised me. 
Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, and Da Vinci called the foot, you know, a marvel of engineering because it really, really is. You know, we need our foot to do two things. It needs to support us and be stable, but at the same time, it needs to be a mobile adapter to the terrain. If it stayed rigid all the time as it hit the ground and didn't have that ability to roll onto the ground and to adapt to the surface that we're on, we would tumble over laterally and that would be it. Conversely, if it's too unstable, that causes us other problems in another direction. So we require the two opposite functions from our feet with every single step that we take and every move that we make. On a baseline, what should we know about our feet? Like, you know, should I, I know that I'm pretty flat footed. I always have been, you know, I mean, is it, is it important that everybody has a baseline understanding of what kind of foot they have? I think that's always a good idea, but it's key to know too that just because you have a flat foot doesn't mean that that flat foot is functioning poorly. Your flat foot is just a variation on a theme like eye color or hair texture or hair color is a variation on the theme. So that if you look at people, there are people with very flat feet, people with very high arched feet, a lot of people somewhere in the middle. Some people have characteristics of both. If your flat foot is functioning well and not causing issues, then you're okay. But if your flat foot is moving in such a way that those 33 joints are not staying aligned well, but are moving and dislocating as you move, then that's gonna be the point that causes you problems. If that very high arched foot doesn't have some ability to be a mobile adapter and to adapt to the terrain, then you're going to have problems as well. So it's that basic understanding of where am I, but then how is that functioning? That really is the key to what we need to know. Right. And when we, is that something that we can self-diagnose? Like if everything's functioning, do I basically know everything is functioning? I guess is what I'm asking. And, and what problems am I looking for if I, if things, as you say, my foot is not working the way it should with the, what I'm doing in the terrain? Right. And I think that's one of those things that it is good to have somebody take an assessment and to look at the foot, because certainly I think we want to head things off at the pass so that you don't want to be the person who comes in when they have an advanced problem. You know, their bunion is really terrible. They can't fit in shoes. They can't run anymore or their heel pain is horrific. You like to be able to look and see some of these things beforehand and to really get them tested out. I think a way to start to look at things is if you can stand and look at your feet, knees, hips in the mirror, you know, um, let's say dressed in your running clothes, right? So you've got a singlet on, you've got some shorts on, that sort of a thing. And you can kind of look at the alignment, you know, is your ankle staying straight over your foot? Are your feet pointed relatively symmetrically? You know, asymmetric function is a huge concern where one foot is doing one thing and one limb is doing the other. You want to look and see, do your knees look like they're continuing to move straight ahead? Um, I'll tell people all the time now, because we have uh, iPhones and, and uh, Androids, have somebody video you while you run. Get a look at that. Look and see if it's symmetrical. Listen to your footsteps as you run. Do they go tom, tom, tom? Or do you hear, you know, a disconnect that it's not equivalent as you're moving? So there are a lot of things that we can look at ourselves. You know, if you have old running shoes, take a look at those, stand them up, look at them from behind. Do they list to one side or the other? Look at the wear pattern on the bottom of the shoe. Do you see anything there that's asymmetric one side to the other? Are you wearing in one particular area more than other areas? You know, all those things would be concerned. Look at the heel counter in the shoe. Oftentimes people will wear right through those in a particular area. That's another sign that something's going on. 
pull out the insoles and put those down and kind of look and see where your footprint has landed. So you can get a lot of information from those things. Also too, genetics plays a huge role. So if you come from a line of people who have had, you know, bunions or painful feet or issues with their feet, then it's a good idea to be screened. You know, I would say for most of us, you know, if we have problems with our feet, then you should be looking at your children. And I guess now for most of us, because soon I will be a grandmother, um, you know, you want to look at infants too, and you want to start to screen them then. So if you have really, you know, you have grandchildren, that's the time to start to look at these things and to see, because you can influence the foot. You know, as you said, the bones are not really solidified and ossified totally till we're 21. But for the very young, you know, that's a very mobile structure that you can really have a very positive or a very negative effect into by addressing. Interesting. Interesting. So, so let's, um, Let's talk a little bit. I want to talk about all that stuff, the, the, the bunions and the hammer toes and all those things that, that can develop for sure, because our audience has a lot of them. And I hear those questions all the time. Um, I want to I want to dip my toes in. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that, but good, I just did. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you talk about it on your Instagram a lot. And, I, and I'm not certain how many women still wear high heels in this audience, but I'm pretty certain that a lot of us did, you know, if we don't still. And I want to talk about high heel shoes, short-term, long-term, as we come into this, because it is it is definitely something that has to affect the quality um, of your foot health, correct? Yes. I mean, in, and one thing to start with is this, you know, all things in moderation, right? So right. in a perfect world, we would all wear a heel height, you know, occasionally of no more than two inches, preferably in a stacked heel, because you're going to get much more stability from that. Um, wedges are great because you get the effect of looking like you're in a heel without being in such a, a torqued position. You know, optimally a, a lower heel is better for the foot. The thing that happens most often in a high heel for people who have worn them for years, which used to be the case, right? I mean, every woman who got dressed for work was in some kind of high heel, is you get tremendous shortening of the Achilles tendon, you know, and the plantar fascia as well, because you're literally on this elevation, which then makes it impossible to offset that and to get down into anything that's a bit more flat. You know, when you look at the design of most athletic shoes, especially a running shoe, you'll see now that you know, what we call the drop, the differential from front to back, it's about eight millimeters, six millimeters. So certainly not being in a heel all the time is optimum. Will heels cause problems? Well, yeah, in some cases they will, um, you know, because they're, you're going to put more pressure onto the ball of the foot. So you can end up just with more general foot discomfort. Will it cause a bunion? No. If you have the genetics that you're going to develop a bunion, um, then you really need to take, you know, big steps and be under a podiatrist's care to kind of head that off. But if you have inherited the perfect foot type, you know, the shoe is not going to cause that. It can cause irritation and some discomfort, but the genetics are really the primary role, you know, and if you have inherited the genetics where your foot type historically is not that great, wearing a, a, a poor shoe is going to make that manifest itself a lot sooner than it would otherwise. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, would the same be true of shoe size? There's, there's always been this sort of trope that women don't wear the, the correct shoe size. And I, do, I don't know how accurate that is either. Um, 
I suspect that that might have been more true back in the day than it is now that I don't know if women are as concerned about like having tiny, delicate feet these days. But, um, <laughs> you know, how important is it to have your correct shoe size as well? Infinitely correct, because okay. the, okay. you know, you're going to be miserable in a short shoe. And I would say when when I look at patient shoes across the board, and this applies to men as well, 90% of people are in the wrong Size. Really? <clears throat> yeah, because we've had our shoe size measured at some point on a standard device, but the shoe manufacturers do not use that standardization for their size. So literally, you know, I could make a shoe four inches long, call it a size seven and a half, and that would be fine. It's why most of us find that we bump up when we buy our athletic shoes, that the shoes that we wear, you know, the size that we wear in our casual shoes is not translating into our running shoes. Optimally, in an athletic shoe, you want from the tip of your longest toe, which for most people is going to be their second toe versus their first toe, you want your thumb's width in space beyond that second toe. That's going to be a proper length because as you work out, the feet are going to swell and expand. They're also going to slide forward in the shoe. And this will help you preventing, you know, the black toenails and the, those, you know, all that callus on the tip of the toes that most people end up getting. Um, tennis shoes as well, you know, the sudden starts and stops, you know, all the racket sports, you need that same kind of a thing. You would want the widest part of your foot, which is generally going to be across the metatarsals, like where a bunion would be to the opposite side to correspond to the widest part of the shoe. And you want your foot fully supported so that if someone has a bunion and that bunion area is unsupported by the sole of the shoe, well, that's not going to be very good at all. And you've got to create that width. The problem is that women have wider forefeet, you know, that metatarsal area, than men and narrower heels. But most shoe manufacturers still make shoes to the model of a men's foot. So it's wider in the heel and narrower in the forefoot. And we have a hard time finding something that fits us in the forefoot. And a lot of us are slipping out the back of the heels and then have to make, you know, modifications with our laces to try to sink and cinch that up a bit. But shoe fit is really, really important, both from a performance perspective and a comfort perspective as well. Absolutely. <laughs> when you were talking, I was thinking I have a couple of cycling friends who slice the sides of their cycling shoes for their bunions to, uh, to get some relief because cycling yeah. shoes, as you probably know, are notoriously narrow. Right. Very narrow. And the leather is generally much more stiff. You know, as you look now at running shoes and trail shoes, and now even golf shoes have started to do it. Some of the tennis shoes as well. They've adopted that more uh, stretchy fabric on the top. They're not, you know, putting all the plastic pieces around to bind everything down. And that can be really helpful, especially if you have hammer toes or something like that. You're not going to have that leather pressure. But, you know, in cycling, you're right. It's narrow. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very tough. So let's talk a little bit about all this in, in terms of the menopause transition, you know, which also collides with midlife. You know, I recognize sometimes it's hard to tease those things out, but how does the loss of estrogen affect collagen and bone and connective tissue? And like, what is the ramifications for our foot health? Cause I've read many places like Achilles tendonitis goes up, plantar fasciitis goes up, just hearing my audience. I hear that. So um, I'd love to, you to speak to that a little bit. 
Right. And of course, you know, the loss of estrogen is going to affect our collagen production. And, you know, historically, the the focus has been, uh, you know, when talking about this in women on our faces, right, that we got to smear a thousand different creams on our faces to restore the collagen. But yeah, collagen is the building block of bone building block of tendon as well. So certainly as we start to lose some of that, it certainly can be problematic and more predispose us. I think too, one of the issues is for you know women of our age who are active, by this point in our life, we have taken a lot of steps, you know, and we have put our muscles and tendons through a lot. So you're sort of accumulating that stress into the area as well, as well as then addressing the fact that, yes, our tendons are not as supple. I think we all recognize that, you know, as we move through life, we tend to get a little less flexible. Um, we get less strong. So fortunately, there are things we can do to offset that. You know, we can easily, we can work on our flexibility. We can take up yoga, even just doing, you know, the basic stretches and really taking the time to do that with our workouts, foam rolling, all those things are beneficial. And of course, working on our strength as well. So what does that, what does that look like in terms of our foot health? I mean, it brings up a couple of questions to mind, like is collagen supplements is kind of hot right now. I mean, is that, is that beneficial for the collagen in our feet? I mean, is there something to be said for that? And do, should we be exercising our feet and stretching our feet? You know, I love a good foot exercising program. Um, on my website, we have a library and we do a lot on there of just, um, you know, some core strength and some flexibility training, but we have some specific foot exercises. I think the most common one, and a lot of people might know is, is, is short foot, which you can find YouTube videos to everywhere, but that will really start to work some of the intrinsic musculature within the foot. I mean like scrunching a towel kind of thing. Exactly. It's scrunching a towel. It's kind of trying to keep the toes straight and heighten the arch. Um, It's really hard to do, but all those things can be really, you know, really beneficial for the feet because I think we all strength train, but how many of us are really doing anything for the foot, right? We're really not, you know, we're really not. So, you know, incorporating some of those things can definitely be helpful because we know that strength training is helpful. Um, I think from a a evidence-based medicine perspective, you know, collagen supplements, uh, the jury is still kind of out and back and forth on that as well. You know, and the question being, you know, can we really take anything in that is going to go and work on the collagen? I think in this respect, you know, probably the dermatologists are ahead of us because they've been looking at, you know, collagen supplementation for years and haven't really come up with anything yet that really does seem to build that back again. Right, right. And as far as massaging the feet go, I mean, is there benefit? I have these little yoga toes sitting here on my desk. I don't know if they feel good. I'm not sure if they're doing anything uh, healthy for my feet, but, you know. Well, I think, look, foot massage is great. Who doesn't like foot massage? Well, right. And, and yeah. you know, that let's start with that. So anything that makes you feel better obviously has to be good. And, and I think as athletes, we are all accustomed to getting a good sports massage and working things out. So this is no different. What works harder than your feet? Because even if it's a day that you're not working out, your feet are still working. You know, they don't really get a day off. So, you know, that's always good. I love those yoga toes. Uh, we use those a lot. I give them out a lot to patients who have bunions and hammer toes, because what starts to happen is as those bones move and shift, 
the tendons become tighter and tighter, pulled out of alignment, and then they start to become a deforming force and add to the problem. So those little yoga toes, and there are even the ones that, you know, loop around and your toes slip completely in, they will start slowly to stretch out some of those tendons, you know, which can be good because what you don't want to see, you don't want it to be like a, a violin where you can see all those tendons really strung out tight across the top of the foot. You want to be able to visualize them, you know, but you don't want them to be that tight. So those little yoga toes and things can be great. And I think they're nice because now everybody is on their computer so much. You can slip them on, you know, while you're doing something else. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's a, and you can also like rub your foot over one of those balls while you're doing something else too, like a little tennis racquetball kind of things. Yeah, exactly. I think those, all those things are really great. I'm a, I'm a big fan of using um, the small, soft balls. There was something called a miracle ball and um, Yamuna has some soft balls and all kind of like you would buy a small baby, maybe about six inches in diameter. And I like those for rolling because they'll compress a little bit, but they'll conform. And I think for women's bodies, especially, it can be nicer sometimes than a foam roller, which we're conforming to the foam roller. Here, the ball will sort of wiggle around our anatomy a little bit better. And I think that's kind of nice. You can really get into like the glutes and piriformis. You can really get into the psoas well without it being as painful as a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball. And then of course, rolling the arch and all is nice. It's, um, let me see. Oh, you're on video. I can show you. Yeah, yeah. And I can explain it. See, it's something oh, like about that size. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Just, and it um, works really well. Yeah. The, the yoga, some yoga classes have used those balls. I'll look them up and yes. I'll put a note to the, in the show notes for everybody. Um, but I think they're kind of nice and, and they're easy. They're easy to transport if you're traveling or on the road or you're going to a race or anything like that versus, you know, hauling your foam roller, which will take up half your suitcase. But, you know, I, I like those. I think they work well. And on the feet, they're great. Yeah, no, that's great. Great. Tip. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of these conditions that we've alluded to over and over. Let, let's start with bunions because it seems to be so common. Um, what is a bunion? And w- is I almost heard you say that it could be preventable if you know that it could be coming your way. Is that, is that true? Yeah. It's so a bunion basically is when the bones start to move and shift. So we have five long bones or metatarsals in the feet. And what happens is the first one, rather than staying parallel to the others begins to move towards the inside of the foot and becomes very prominent there. And then the body layers down some extra bone and generally the big toe then drifts over in the opposite ever actually, direction because for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction so the metatarsal moves one way the big toe moves in the other direction and that is what a bunion is and then from there of course we can develop irritation because that part of the foot is where we push off and propulse ourselves forward so now what's happening is that we're propulsing ourselves more on a different part of the foot we're not getting a good forward progression the knee starts to drift and everything starts to get torqued out of alignment with a bunion. So in my family, I come from a long line of bunions. You know, my mother had, you know, bunions, her parents as well. Um, and from when I was young, um, you know, my mother would put cookies in my shoes because I complained that my feet hurt even when I was three or four years old. Um, you know, fortunately, when I was about 16, I got into orthotics. So that has really kind of shut the process down. Because if you can 
uh, see it at a young enough age that you can start to mold and move the foot in a better direction, that you cannot allow the pathomechanics that continue to allow the bunion to progress. Um, if you can you know, wear shoe gear that's not irritating, you can really do a good job with that. And so you can really minimize what's going to happen. What kind of cookies did you put in your shoes? I don't really understand. I think that's what they called. I think that's what they called like these over-the-counter art supports. They called oh, them cookies back in the day. Like, did she not want you to wear your shoes? I didn't hey, want, I'm, I didn't I'm old. You know, this is. <laughs> As, and there's a lot of cultural things, but no, that's. Um, so you're saying that being fitted for a for an orthotic can help with this situation. Yes, is what I'm hearing. Right. You okay. really, you really can do a good job with that, but you have to get you know, um, young girls when they're young girls. What happens if you already adjust. have them? I mean, I have some friends with some gnarly bunions yeah, they're, I mean, you know, in their you, late forties. What you can do at that point basically is, you know, like you've done with your foot, you know, optimize everything, optimize your shoe gear, get into an orthotic so the bunion doesn't get worse. And you attempt to at least direct the forces through the foot in the best possible manner. And, you know, those are the kind of things that can at least keep you pain-free. Is surgery ever implicated? Sometimes it is. I mean, you know, sometimes the foot is, you know, really significantly deviated. And it's the type of thing that if your bunion is really horrible, you cannot fit in any shoes. You have pain with every step. You've tried these other things and, you know, it's miserable. It's time to consider that. You know, I tell all my patients, you'll know when you're ready to have surgery. You know, you'll know when you say like, okay, this is too great an inconvenience. I don't want to be cutting the sides of my cycling shoes anymore. <laughs> right. You know, I can't, right. I can't wear anything. You know, I don't live in, you know, in the Caribbean where I can walk around barefoot all day long and you'll know when you're ready to do it. And certainly if it's one of those things where it's severe, you know, I'll see women sometimes in their thirties or forties where their bunions are just horrific. And, you know, I'll say to them, look, you've got another 40, perhaps 50 years to go on these feet. And I don't think you're going to make it with your foot in that condition, you know, and if it's something has to be done, start to look at your life now, look at, you know, when you think you might be able to work the surgery in. Certainly for a lot of women, if you've got small children, you know, if you've got a job where you're on your feet, you know, all these things factor into the decision. The one good thing about bunion surgery, it's not emergency surgery. It's not the type of thing that you have to do today or tomorrow. You can kind of work it into your life schedule. Um, but for some people, it is the best option, you know, because they're miserable. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um Plantar fasciitis and heel pain, are those one and the same? I hear people talk about heel pain and then I hear people talk about plantar fasciitis and I'm not sure if they're always the same thing. They're not, you're right. There are a lot of different things that can cause heel pain. Um, you know, the most common being plantar fasciitis, you know, an inflammation um, and a degradation of that plantar fascia. And that can either affect people, you know, at the base of the heel where the plantar fascia meets the heel. Sometimes they'll get pain at the height of the arch, you know, mid part of the arch. And sometimes it'll be more towards the metatarsal area as well. So plantar fasciitis can affect anything in through there, but there are a lot of things that can cause heel pain. You can develop, you know, small tears in the plantar fascia. There's uh, much more rare 
type of thing where the nerve becomes entrapped in the lawn there. Some people have heel pain because it's really their Achilles that is bothering them, or they have a bursitis in the posterior heel, or you know where the small fibers of the heel uh, of the Achilles meet into the heel, they have inflammation there. So you know heel pain, kind of an overall term, um, but there are a lot of different things that can cause pain in the heel. And and what are the best ways to to take care. I mean, I like, I like to talk about prevention, but I know everybody who has plantar fasciitis is like, that's great, but I already have it. And it's really, it can be very stubborn. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it can be persistent. Like for someone who has some persistent plantar fasciitis, what is their best, best course of action? I think your, your best course of action is, you know, if you've tried for you know, let's say a month or so on your own, you've, you know, started doing some extra stretching, Uh, you've replaced your shoes, they're not, you know, worn. Don't forget for us now, shoe lifespan is much less than what it used to be. You know, when I first started running, you know, a shoe lifespan was probably 450, maybe even 500 miles. You know, now shoes have become lighter. There's much more foam, gel, air, goo, you know, whatever proprietary material in the shoe, the shoes are, you know, the drop is lower. So those shoes now, yeah, 350 miles or so is when you really start to have to think about replacing them. So the first thing is really, you know, look at the shoe. Um, you know, look at what you're wearing when you're not in your running shoes. You know, do you have something on that has some decent support? Try not to be barefoot. You know, you want to get some good stretches in, you know, stretching is really key, trying to loosen up that plantar fascia a bit. Ice at the end of your runs, Uh, stretch your hamstrings, you know, make sure you do that as well. Stretch your calves because that whole chain will be involved when you have a plantar fasciitis. So those are all the things to start to look at. Look and see if there's one triggering event that might have done it. You know, I used to call it, you know, the the Disney World plantar fasciitis, where somebody suddenly goes to Disney World, they walk 10 miles a day for five days, and now their foot is killing them. You know, if it's isolated to like one event, you're probably going to be able to deal with it fairly successfully on your own because you're not repeating that overloading event. But if it's the type of thing that's occurring just from your day-to-day activities and you've tried for about a month or so, then it's time to really see somebody about it. You know, we use a lot of physical therapy. Um, We, you know, I love physical therapists. I think they do a fabulous job. Um, You know, we can sometimes do a, a cortisone injection if we need to just if the person's really, really miserable, you know, to try to break the pain cycle and get them feeling a little bit better. But you're really, your best plan is to look at why is it happening and then address the causes of that, whether it's an instability in the foot or a rigidity in the foot that's overloading the plantar fascia and treat it that way. In general, barefoot versus shoes while walking around the house. I'm a barefoot person forever, but is that, is that a bad practice? No, it really isn't. It's sort of the the idea of, you know, all things in moderation. You know, some people can be barefoot all the time, never have a problem. We see those photos of someone crossing the finish line in the marathon in their flip flops. You know, those people have great feet. They're, you know, in good shape it works for them and it's fine. Not everybody falls into that. Again, it's that same kind of paradigm of where are you on the scale? Mixing it up, I think is crucial. You know, if we wear the same shoe all the time for everything that we do, we work the same muscles in the same way. 
the more we mix it up, the more we distribute that stress and strain, right? It's why we cross train, you know, it's right. because we're working different muscles all the time. You know, we're not overloading mm. any one particular structure. And it's the same kind of thing with your shoes. Now, you could walk around barefoot all day and you're fine and it feels great. I can probably walk barefoot for an hour and then I'm not so comfortable anymore. So we all have our, you know, limitations but it is good. You know, when you're barefoot, your intrinsic muscles are going to work a little bit harder. Other muscles are going to work. And I think it's a good idea. It's a question of finding where you are and how much of it you can tolerate. Sort of like when people started getting into minimalism, some people can do it all the time. Some people can do it a little bit. Some people cannot do it at all, but you know, mixing things up is always better for the body. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And I will note that if I'm standing, if I'm static, I don't like to be barefoot as much. Um, and that's when I put on, and I was going to ask you about this later, but I'll ask you now. I've become a very big fan of like these recovery sandals, like UFOs mm-hmm. or, yeah, you know, sure. they're so comfortable. Like, what do you, what's happening there? I mean, they feel like magic, but I'm sure they're not. Like, I, I was just, it's so, they're so comfortable. I mean, your whole body. Are great. Yeah. yeah, UFOs are really great. And, and I think there's two things there. They do build in, you know, some good arch support. And of course, you have that, you know, nice platform, a lot of cushion, there's a little bit of that rocker bottom on it. So it, in a rocker bottom shoe like that, it takes a little stress off the joints, because the shoe is doing some of the work of oh. pulsing you forward. Okay. That okay, so sense. for like, for you with your party hat, you know, um, (laughs) my party hat being the bone spur in my big toe. Yes, go ahead. You get a little bit of a break. You know, when you're in the UFOs, the UFOs is doing some of the propulsive movement forward. And so it takes a little less, you know, take some strain off your party hat joint. That makes so much sense because they do, they do feel kind of magical when I put them on. It's like, especially (laughs) after like, you know, again, with the cycling shoes, cycling shoes are just so, you know, they're, they're kind of unforgiving. They're stiff. They're tight. There's a lot to there's And when you're in eight hours in a cycling shoe, you're like, I'm going to put on my UFOs now and, and fix this. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, what are hammer toes and why do they happen? I just want to like hit a couple of these big ones, you know, that I sure. hear from the audience. So hammer toes are another bony deformity where the bones uh, literally start to mouth shape Um, within the foot. And they're called hammer toes because the idea is they look like a hammer, you know, where that distal joint then curves down the way a a hammer would. Basically, that's caused by a lot of things. It's, you know, again, genetics. um, And then a lot of it is how the musculature within the foot is working and pulling those toes out of alignment. A lot of times we use our toes to grip and stabilize the foot a bit. So if we're doing that perpetually, because the foot is not quite as stable as it should be, or not moving in the right way, then the toes start to grip. And eventually the tendons start to pull them more in that direction. You get a weakness then of the surrounding ligamentous structures and the musculature going into the joint and the toes become, you know, bent like that. Most people who have them, I would say, generally have some bunion component with it as well. And as the big toe starts crowding everybody out, the toes start to hammer and it just becomes this gradual progression over time. And is there, what does one do to stem that progression? Again, I like using the yoga toes that we were talking about, really stretching and strengthening that intrinsic musculature within the foot. Gotcha. 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 And shoes, you know, one of the things that can also lead to hammer toes is that short 
shoe, that improper shoe fit, where you're just shoving yourself in the shoe, there's not enough room. And so the toes bend because they have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just laughing because my aunt Irene always shoved her feet into these tiny little kitten heels with these tight I entered shows which is like stacked. I mean, it was just, it, yeah, back in the day. Anyway, um, <laughs> Morton's Neuroma, um, I have heard, and I don't actually know what that one is. Okay, so Morton's Neuroma is essentially a pinched nerve within the foot. Okay. Um, generally, the metatarsal bones, right? So we've talked about the bunion where the first one moves away from the others. For every action, there's an equal and an opposite. The first metatarsal moves away, the second and third, or the third and fourth move closer together. And in between those bones passes a nerve, the intermetatarsal nerves. So as those bones move closer together, they can just catch and pinch that nerve. And you start to develop uh, you know, sharp pain, burning pain, electric shock type of sensation, pain in the ball of the foot, often right, radiating okay. into the toes. Mm-hmm. And we're talking the same sort of treatment and prevention for that, right? Like keeping the foot healthy, stretched out. Exactly. Shoes, proper shoes, you know, anything you put on that really squeezes the foot closer together, of course, is going to push those bones closer and you're going to pinch the nerve that way. Um, Many people, probably 80% of people who have an aroma have an underlying bunion. And, you know, as that first metatarsal, if you think of it as like being an incredibly important area of the foot, as that is malaligned, it causes then all these subsequent changes. So a lot of people will not even have bunion pain, but the neuroma becomes the first manifestation of all these changes going on within the foot. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then finally, the party hat. (laughs) I have talked about it many times on the show that I have you know, a, a, a pretty pronounced bone spur in my, um, my right big toe joint, the, the base of it. And it's, I've heard from many people in the audience that have the exact same thing on one of their foot. What is, is that just wear and tear? Like what, where did that, where did that party hat come from? So generally those are what we call either a hallux limitus where the motion at the great toe joint becomes limited or a rigidus where it's severely limited. And again, it goes down to that first metatarsal. That first metatarsal is not functioning as well as it should. And so you get jamming of it against the base of the great toe joint and bones respond to stress, right? It's why we exercise to build bone strength. This is that same mechanism, but just not optimum for us. So as those two bones jam together and hit each other, the bone reacts to that by enlarging in that area and forming that spurring in, in response to the jamming of the joint. Yeah, no, I think Iron Man one and two did that for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't a lot of that, a lot of that running. It is, I mean, some of these things I think are, they seem preventable, but like if you, if you use your body enough, like things do tend to happen. Right. I mean, I, I don't, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think too, every, and every person's different. Some people can, you know, run like Shane Flanagan, how many marathons in how many days. Right. And, you know, for other people, they just don't have the, you know, the biomechanics and the physiology that's going to allow them to do one marathon, you know, so it's all a little bit different, but certainly you're right. Accumulated stress Whereas you're training for that Ironman. You're taking a lot more steps than the person who, you know, runs 30 miles a week. Um, and a lot of that, that mechanics, that imperfection just gets magnified the more that we're on it. 
your thoughts, because I know you do a lot with running, you know, and, and a lot with marathoners. So what are your thoughts on finding the right shoe for you? Because there's, my Lord, a lot to choose from. There's motion oh. control, there's minimus, there's Hoka, Hoka, you know, I mean, there's so many different things to choose from. Like, where does one start to know the best shoe for their foot? I mean, I know you can go to the shoe store and they help you, but is there any, is there any tips you have or thoughts you have on running sure. shoes? You know, I think the the range that we see on the market, right, where you have on the one hand, you've got minimalist shoes, you know, uh, you know, zero drop, 361s, all those kind of things, you know, five fingers, which is pretty much, you know, kind of fallen <laughs> off the, the, yeah. the radar screen. The but you're looking, yeah, you're looking at that and you're looking at hokas all existing in the same universe. And I think that shows you how diverse you know, our bodies are and our anatomy, our physiology and our function, that all these things can exist in the same kind of market. Um, A good starting point always is just to, if you're going to be a runner, start with just a neutral shoe. It's really hard to go wrong with just something that's got good support, good cushioning, but not an extreme of either one. And, you know, move around and see what you think, what you like, what you don't like. I always tell people, if you can go to a specialty store, that's always a great starting point because they're always going to be there for you. They are going to work with you so that if you do buy a shoe that's completely wrong, you know, they're going to help you work in the right direction and really stand behind you. And they know they know their stock. They know what they've got, um, you know, and they know what's kind of a, a gimmick and what is, you know, going to really be better for you. So I think they're really great in that regard. Um, you know, always go at the end of the day. Your feet are tired. Uh, your feet have expanded a bit more at the end of the day. You know, I even tell people go after a workout, you know, when you might feel like, oh, I have a little ache here, a little ache there. You know, try on a shoe really don't be afraid to bounce around in it. You know, don't be afraid to really move around, jump up and down, you know, and give it a real trial to see what you think of it, you know, before you really commit to it. Um, You know, certain shoes fit differently. Some brands are more narrow. Some brands are more generous. Some have higher toe boxes. And it's all about, you know, looking at your foot and what really feels good to you as a good starting point, but you really can't go wrong with starting with a neutral shoe and then sort of tweaking from there how you go. But it's, it's tough. It is really, really tough, you know, to, to figure it out, even for people who do this all the time to write, find the right shoe for the right person. A lot of it too is based on, you know, body type. You really want a shoe. You want the least amount of shoe that will make you feel comfortable. You don't want to bog yourself down in a big, heavy shoe that's made for a Clydesdale runner, you know, when you, you know, you're a lightweight, petite woman, you know, so though all those things take, you know, are taken into account as well. Yeah. And, and you're, I had a running analysis done and, you know, there's a lot to be said for that too. Like how you, how you strike, how you land, on those feet, you know, I run a little bit like a water buffalo. I've been trying to not run like a water buffalo, but you know, I'm I'm not a light. I'm not light on my feet, and uh, I do love my hokas. But you know, I I think that that's just because I I am not a light striker. Well, I think too for you with the Halix Limitus, the hoka's nice. It's that same mm. kind of concept as the Ufo. So we put we put a lot of people with forefoot issues into those shoes for that reason. That and, makes sense, and it works. And when it you works. say that. Yeah. You know, before we started recording, we were talking about um, bone health and osteopenia and, and low bone density. And I've, I've not ever really thought about how that plays out in the feet. 
you know, but it, it has to, right? Since we have Definitely. so many bones in our feet. Right. And, and exactly. And when you go for bone density testing, you know, what you're seeing there is reflective of what's throughout the body. So oftentimes, you know, we'll see somebody come in, they have heel pain or neuroma pain, and, you know, we'll take an x-ray and you see already there, you know, you can see the signs of osteopenia beginning. Mm. And, you know, that's when it's best to intervene. But of course, you know, it's all reflected throughout the skeletal system. You know, when I think we talk a lot and we focus a lot on, you know, the hip fractures and the spinal fractures, but as the doc said in the bone health recording, you know, those are sort of the last, that hip fracture is the last stage. So if we can catch it early, you know, that's the time that we can really start to do something about it so that we don't progress to osteoporosis. Yeah. Do you see um, fractures in the feet? Yeah, we see a lot. A lot of stress fractures, a lot of metatarsal fractures. You know, the lesser metatarsals are much thinner than the first Mm -hmm. metatarsal. So we see a lot of that, you know, where we get stress fractures. That's unfortunately a common thing that we see. And the treatment of that, I mean, you always hear that there's not much you can do for a broken toe. Is that true? No, not really. You know, like anything else, you know, if someone fractures a toe, you know, we're going to splint it. Um, Sometimes they'll even displace. So if they're displaced, we have to put them back into alignment again. If someone has a, you know, stress fracture or a fracture of their metatarsal, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to immobilize them, you know, until they've got enough healing that we can get them out of that boot. Um, I try as always get people out of immobilization as fast as we possibly can, um, you know, so that we offset some of the other side effects. But, you know, that has to be done in combination with getting them into PT, getting them stronger, you know, looking at their nutrition and seeing what else is going on. Um, We try anybody that we see for a stress fracture or a fracture to really get them on a better path right away, because we'll see, you know, young girls, the track athletes, the volleyball athletes, you know, all coming in. So it's not as though it's something that we only see in women down the road. You know, we're seeing it a lot in these young athletes as well. Well, yeah. And we've had shows on that, like low energy availability is a thing, you know, when you don't have enough fuel and your body's not getting what it needs. I mean, that's when you start seeing stress reactions, stress fractures and all that, no matter, no matter your age. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a huge part of the whole thing. So, you know, again, nothing is in isolation. It's not as though you could, you know, look at the feet and isolate them from the rest of the body. You know, they're a manifestation basically of every other system within the body. You know, we check the pulses there because that's going to be reflective of blood flow, hypertension, cardiac disease, you know, nerve status is going to be emblematic of that. What the skin looks like is going to be emblematic of if there are any, you know, autoimmune issues or any chronic illnesses like like diabetes or anything like that, that are occurring. Excellent. Excellent. So like, what would be a, if there was some sort of daily foot care routine that that came to mind for women in this audience who are super active and use their feet in so many ways, like what, what would be a, a good way to take care of our feet? Okay. So I would say, you know, when we talked about this at the beginning, and I always say, if we paid as much attention to our feet as to our faces, you know, (laughs) we would all be in a much better place. Right. But I would say, you know, comfortable shoes, comfortable in the correct shoe for you and for your activity is the first. Um, I always tell people, you know, take a look at your feet. 
you know, make sure you kind of take a look at them every day. Look and see if you see any swelling. Look and see if you see any areas of irritation. Like suddenly, gee, this one area is bright red after I come back from my run or after I finish riding. You know, get a look at that. Try to get a handle on what is going on. Um, you know, massage, we talked about that, you know, is always great. Um, some lotion on, you know, the tops of the feet just to keep them hydrated, maybe a little bit around the rims of the heels where we'll tend to, you know, from the pounding and all, we can get some dried skin in through there. Um, you know, if you're spending, like when you were saying eight hours on the bike or something like that, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, at like an antifungal spray when you get out of the shower, just to limit the fact that our feet are in this incredibly moist environment, you're really banging it out in eight hours on the bike, you're going to come off drenched and your feet as well. And you don't want to end up with any fungal irritations or where the skin gets really macerated and starts to break down. Um, you know, I like the foot exercises. I think we should all incorporate those into our strength routine. I like the stretching as well that we should all incorporate into our, you know, stretching routines also. And I think that's a good way to, you know, take care of the feet. Look at your shoes, look at the wear pattern on them, see if you notice anything that's amiss in what's going on and try to get it, you know, if we can get ahead of it, we're much better off than when someone comes in and says, I've had heel pain for a year, you know, well, now, now it's going to take a long time to get rid of that. But if you come in and say, yeah, I've had heel pain for a month. Okay. This is going to be a, a much quicker path to recovery. Totally. And you can bring your shoes in, right. And be like, well, this is oh, what yeah. my shoes. Yeah. There's what my I've shoes had people like. bring in suitcases, you know, rolling suitcases <laughs> filled with shoes. So. All my shoes. This is what I'm wearing and this is what is happening. No, that's, that's a great, that's a great point. And, you know, as also as listeners have, have heard me talk about, and we talked about a bit, um, I know I have had success and some of our audiences had success with some of the, um, more, uh, popular supplements over time, like a glucosamine, you know, like a, mm -hmm. Um, Boswellia, and uh, is that just when people have success with that? Is just is that just an anti-inflammatory effect? I mean, is it just bringing down the inflammation? Well, you know, the theory between behind chondroitin is no, right? It's not functioning okay. as an anti-inflammatory. It's really functioning more as a as a building block. Okay, so that's right. always, that's always a good thing. Um, you know, certainly if we can find something that's making us feel better, that in some way is, is helping the underlying cause that's better than just, you know, throwing an anti-inflammatory on it. Um, you know, the, the anti-inflammatory is kind of addressing the symptoms. You always want to look back at the underlying cause, you know, that being said, um, if people are popping Advil like crazy, you know, then you're going to have GI issues and all that other stuff that, you know, that's not a good path either. And, you know, we see people all the time, like, uh, you know, people our age who start to say, oh yeah, I get up every morning. I take, you know, two Advil or three Advil, you know, with breakfast, not really the best <laughs> thing, you know? No, I mean, right. no, no, no. We never, ever, ever recommend that. I mean, when I think about some of the anti-inflammatory things that I know that uh, other, other, guests on the show have, have recommended it's more along the lines of dietary, like an anti-inflammatory diet, you know, a diet that's lower in like refined sugar. Yeah. A diet that maybe has more turmeric or whatever, like things that are not at exactly. all things that are, yeah. Things that are not. Yes. Yeah. I you please know. do not take vitamin I, 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 that is not, I mean, they used to advertise it that way. Right. I mean, right. I used to see, I used to see ads in runner's world. Like I do the miles, I do the vitamin I I'm like, wow. Okay. Let's not do that. 
Yeah. And unfortunately, you still see it done a lot where, you know, someone will go in for a problem and, you know, someone just says like, yeah, okay, take, you know, take ibuprofen. You know, there's times where if somebody is really miserable, I'll say to them, okay, three days, you can do it for three days and that's it. And you do it, you do it on a full stomach. And and this is the regimen that we're going to have just to kind of break that pain cycle a little bit, but that's it. It's not, it's not a treatment plan. You know, it's not addressing the underlying cause. It's just kind of throwing something at the symptoms, you know, so it can be like a cortisone injection. Does it have its place? Maybe at times it does, but it's not the way you treat something. It's, you know, it's not addressing the root cause of a problem. It's just throwing something at the symptoms. Right. And then finally, at what point should someone pursue orthotics? You know, I I mean, I'm I've never actually used orthotics. I know people who say like everybody should have orthotics. I, I'm, where do you come down on like when an orthotic is appropriate or necessary? Okay, so you know, for me, if if someone prevents presents, they've had a problem for a month, they've tried ice, they've changed their shoes, they've done all the things that we talked about, and the problem really persists. You know, at that point, what we're going to do is look at them functional. So we're going to look and see what is that foot doing when they're on the ground? What is that foot doing as they're walking? And we'll look at that and see if the problem looks like it's a way of a problem in their functionality and their mechanics, then that's the point where orthotics are appropriate for them. You know, if the foot is not moving in a good direction, it's not moving properly, then that's the point where you're going to use the orthotic to restore their optimum function. So my optimal function is going to be different from your optimal function is going to be different from someone else's. Um, But that's the point where you want to get into that in combination with stretching and strengthening and all those other things, which are part of it. But if you, you know, if you feel that the problem is not something that's going to resolve with just, you know, tweaking the workout routine and, you know, some ice and some stretching and strengthening, but it more lies at the intrinsic functionality and biomechanics of that foot. That's the time that an orthotic is appropriate because it's going to change the mechanics of the foot and it's going to address that. And that's the way that it's going to help with the issue. Perfect. Excellent. Well, I, I, is there anything that you thought we should talk about that we haven't addressed here for our audience? I think, I, I think we have touched everything about feet. Yeah, no, it's excellent. And I will, you mentioned that you have some uh, material on your own website, as far as exercises and stretching. Uh, is that yes. somewhere that we can send people for reference? We sure can. Um, you know, my website is uh, com. DR for doctor. Um, <laughs> and if you go there, we have a library. And in the library, then it has just a, you know, a really basic routine of core exercises that starts simplistically and, you know, builds to more complex things. And it has foot strengthening, foot stretching exercises that are on there. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time. And um, this has been a great discussion for keeping all of our feet happy and healthy. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down once again with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo and talk testosterone. We dive deep into how this often overlooked hormone affects our health and performance and what it means at this time in our lives. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. (music) 
You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.